Support for The Trend comes from members of the Local Programming Fund. Next week concludes a new campaign in Evansville. It's called 30 Days of Poverty, and it's raising awareness of local poverty issues and highlighting various community and grassroots responses to the problem. Gina Gibson is the executive director and CEO of the Evansville Christian Life Center. That's the lead organization for 30 Days of Poverty. Gina, welcome to The Trend. Thank you. And also with us, Stephen Ralph. He's a program coordinator at the Evansville Christian Life Center. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, the poverty rate, if we look at it in southwestern Indiana and western Kentucky, it varies from county to county. But Vandenberg County, at at any rate, is around 15%, which is uh, on the high end for southwestern Indiana. And that's about 28,000 people or so. And 30 Days of Poverty got started when you were asked to be involved in a video project going around and assessing local awareness of poverty issues. It was. And, you know, um, when someone actually wanted to talk about doing this documentary and we asked them what they thought poverty was, um, the person said it was a homeless person under the bridge. And so, yes, that in essence is a piece of it, but it's so much more than that. And so we identified what the six areas of what those six faces of poverty look like in our community. And it truly was the reentry. It was aging out of foster care system. It was the homeless, um, individuals in poverty on the bubble, single parents, and mental individuals with mental health issues. And so they went out and did an, a survey, and they asked three different questions. And they asked, what does poverty look like in Evansville? Um, what is the community doing to eradicate poverty? And what part can we all play in that war on poverty? And the overwhelming census was that people really felt like there wasn't much poverty in Evansville. So there really what, and that no one was doing anything. So there really wasn't a need um, to do anything themselves. And that was kind of overwhelming to us as one of the organizations that stands on the front lines each and every day. Now, this wasn't a scientific study. This is just no. going out uh, just a asking, local, asking yeah. people how many people yeah. were surveyed. I know there were over 100. So, you know, quite a wide range of ages also. And so it just it made us realize that, you know, the awareness piece just wasn't there. And so we really needed to just bring that to light in our community. So why do you think people don't think there's an issue with poverty when we have in Vanderbilt County alone over 28,000 people living in poverty? You know, I think that people get in the middle of what they do each and every day and they have blinders on and they just don't worry about what another person is doing. And then another issue is sometimes people are actually living on that bubble or in poverty and they're just worried about surviving each and every day. So they don't consider themselves in poverty. Stephen, do you notice that when when people come to you, I guess they have to realize that they're facing poverty themselves. I guess that's not, people don't always know that. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that in our community with poverty, poverty is such a significant issue, not only in our nation, but here in our community, that, um, you know, it's easy to kind of sweep it under the rug. Um, the reality is that there are many folks who are struggling every day just to get by. And um, it's not always a, a pretty picture, so it's, it may be difficult to understand and really look at what poverty is in our community. Um, but we all know folks who are struggling. And like Gina said, there are folks who are right on that bubble that anything 
any significant event like the loss of a job, the loss of, loss of a loved one who's bringing in income to the family, uh, illness, loss of transportation, that is enough to put uh, a family into poverty. So you're not in poverty right now, but something significant changes and suddenly you are. Absolutely. And that happens each and every day. We see that individuals who walk through our doors and all of the other agencies that were working with us on this 30 Days of Poverty, it's the same thing with them. You know, someone has a car breakdown and they've, they've got their budget set. There's no extra tweaking room there. And so mm -hmm. when that extra expense come, comes, then they have to make a, a concentrated choice on are we going to pay our rent? Are we going to pay our utilities, fix our car, or feed our children? What's going to come first? So that's where you see a lot of that, where people may not even consider themselves to be in poverty. What do you think is the, the most common perception out there of why people are in poverty? You know, you hear all kinds of things. Um, you hear there's an old statement that really just sends me through the roof, and that is they just need to get a job, when in fact, a lot of individuals are working two and three jobs just to make ends meet because they're not making a livable wage. I'm looking here at this uh, very interesting living wage calculator that MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has put together. And they've done this for, for all the counties in the country, and this one happens to be for Vandenberg County. And they look at typical hourly wages for various fields and, and what you'd have to earn um, to make a living wage, you know, depending on how many people you have in your household. And of the, what, maybe 20 or so fields they have listed here, 11 of them don't pay well enough to support an adult and a dependent child. So you can work full time right. and still be in poverty. Absolutely. And that's what we're finding. I mean, the livable wage here in our county is rather low for most jobs. So you are going to see those families that are working multiple jobs. You know, Stephen, the, uh, Stephen Ralph, the poverty line um, that the government, the federal government has set is often called out as being very unrealistic, um, that, that what qualifies people as being in poverty is in fact so far below what functional poverty actually is that the numbers all get skewed. So when we talk about 15% of Vandenberg County residents being under the poverty line, what do you think we're actually talking about in real terms? Well, that's the, the problem that you run into when you're dealing with statistics. Um, I don't know that you can get an accurate handle on the actual number of folks who are in poverty at any given time. We do our best to try to do that. The government comes out with its federal poverty guidelines uh, every year, and they change. Um, the reality is I think the perception in, in our community is that being human beings, we tend to go off of what we see and um, we see for instance uh, folks pushing a basket down the street with all of their belongings we see folks who go to a homeless shelter we see people that may be standing in a line at a soup kitchen to get a meal or folks at the FSSA to get food stamp benefits or people who are trying to get unemployment benefits 15% um, is a very large number It's a significant portion of our population. So again, we all know folks who are living in poverty. You, you, can't, you can't just go by what you see. We have friends, we have family, we have neighbors, we have coworkers, uh, 
if your children go to school, they have classmates whose families are living in poverty. Uh, that's the reality of poverty in our community and in our nation. I've noticed in looking at statistics that you know, we keep talking about this 15%, but if you actually look at the number of children living in poverty, it's quite a bit higher. It's more like one in four. Why, why is there a disparity between the total number and the number of children who are in poverty? Hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not really sure on that one. Do you see a lot of, I mean, is it, does it disproportionately affect children? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what you're going to see is households with multiple children. So if you have, and a lot of single parents. So if you have single parents and they have multiple children, it is going to change that ratio quite significantly. Is there a typical profile of somebody that you help? And I, I know that's maybe not a very good question because you said you have six different metrics um, that, that all of which could, could contribute to somebody being in poverty. But, but is, there, is there an average? No, I don't, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think there is. Um, I think what you find with folks in the community who are struggling day to day is that, and that's why you can never assume who's in poverty and mm -hmm. who isn't, because um, there's a level of isolation that happens with folks who are, are living in poverty, and uh, that, that keeps people from asking for help, from uh, coming to the surface to, you know, um, ask for the assistance that they need to move forward towards self-sufficiency. We're talking about poverty and 30 Days of Poverty, a new public awareness campaign about local poverty issues. We'll have more after a break. You're listening to The Trend. You're listening to The Trend on 88.3 WNIN-FM and WNIN.org. Still to come, the hungry Hoosier has a recipe for tequila cake and the choral music of Chanticleer. That's all trending on WNIN. Support today comes from Evansville Day School, presenting Summer Academy, nine weeks of educational and enriching programs, offering a new theme each week. Summer Academy is open to all area students age three by September 15th through entering fifth grade. Half day, full day, and extended care options are available. Details at 812-476-3039. We're discussing poverty issues and the new 30 Days of Poverty campaign on the trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Gina Gibson and Stephen Ralph are here from the Evansville Christian Life Center. And I just want to ask something briefly about income disparity, because uh, some, some recent statistics show that 80% of the country uh, or 80% of the population actually holds only 7% of the wealth. And we, we hear frequently about the growing gap between the rich and the poor. Um, but I wonder, uh, and I'm assuming the three of us are, are maybe fairly typical middle-class people who have a mortgage and, and a savings account and, and so forth. Um, so by some metrics, we might be considered wealthy. Does my wealth make somebody else poor? Hmm. I don't know if it makes someone else poor, but I think that it helps in the gaps. I think it helps make those gaps a little bit more 
um, stronger, you know, because when their livable wage is a specific amount and then you have housing costs that keep rising and you have everything else, there's this gap in the middle that families just fall through and it's widening. It's not getting smaller. It's getting wider. So what is then my responsibility? I mean, you know, it's, it's maybe, so maybe in some way I'm contributing to the fact that, uh, that housing prices are rising and so forth. I mean, you know, if you own house, if the more people that own houses, the more the cost goes up. So, so we could be tacitly participating in doing that. Um, what's my responsibility then to the poor? You know, there are so many ways that individuals can come alongside of families that are in need, organizations that serve those families in need each and every day. Most of the poverty-fighting organizations are very few in staff. Um, They're heavily on volunteers. And so, you know, that's just one way that an individual can come in and partner with a family. Um, They can team up with an organization and find out what their gifts and talents are that match up with those organizations and they can be a huge proponent in helping a family move on their journey out of poverty yes um i would add that you know you hear a lot about the erosion of the middle class in america Mm -hmm. um there is a lot of compelling evidence out there all you need to do is get on the internet and google wage gap or Mm -hmm. um you know, the culture of poverty, and there is a wealth of information about the erosion of the middle class. We have a moral imperative to end poverty in our nation and in our community. Uh, It's estimated that we spend $500 billion a year as a nation to deal with poverty-related issues, Um, and that's with 15% of the nation in poverty. What happens when that goes to 17 or 20%? How much are we spending then? It's a moral imperative to end poverty. So, how does one do that? I know, for instance, Evansville has a uh, a plan to end homelessness in 10 years, and we're getting close to the end of that decade, and homelessness is, is not ending. It maybe is better than it was 10 years ago, but can, I mean, are these just good slogans? No, they're really not, but it's going to take a call to action on everyone's part. Um, the Evansville Christian Life Center is the lead organization for Circles. Um, Circles is a way that families can look at what poverty looks like in their family and look what poverty looks like in the community. And then someone in the community can partner with them and become an ally for them. You know, be that cheerleader in their lives, help them with their goals and walk, you know, as they walk forward out of poverty. Absolutely. Circles is a national campaign that started in 2007. It is now in 70 communities across 25 states. We got started with the Circles Initiative here in 2010, and uh, Circles is designed to eradicate poverty. And that, that, that's a key phrase, eradicate, because we need to think in terms of eradicating poverty. If 15% of our population lives in poverty, it's going to take the other 85% to come to the table and be a part of the solution. Circles takes families who are struggling and currently experiencing poverty and pairs them with volunteers from the community, folks just like you and I, who have decided nothing more than, hey, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty, walk alongside a a family that is trying to do everything in their power to move themselves forward uh, towards self-sufficiency. And um, our volunteers, who we call allies, they, they do exactly that. They walk alongside that family. They provide uh, encouragement and support and help them tackle the, the, the problems that they face on a day-to-day basis in trying to move forward.
So when you do a program like 30 Days of Poverty, which has had all kinds of events happening around the community for almost the past month now, yes. uh, it's going to wrap up, as we said, in, in the middle of next week. Uh, the whole point is to raise awareness. So what happens when awareness is raised? How do you know if that's succeeding? Oh, wow. Every one of the organizations that is highlighted um, during the 30 Days of Poverty event, um, every one of them has sufficient volunteers. Every one of them has sufficient funds to be able to do the programs that we have, you know, because that's another issue. Um, a lot of us don't receive federal or state funds. We depend on our community to support us. So, you know, it's that time, talent, and treasure thing that everyone has something to give. You know, last Sunday we had a shoeless Sunday, and so over 15,000 pairs of shoes were given. So, you know, even if you couldn't volunteer, you couldn't give funds, you could give shoes. Everyone has that. So, I mean, there are so many ways that each and every person can come along a side of every organization and help them move move that needle. Let's move that needle. If we don't start now, who's going to do it? The next generation when there are even more individuals in poverty. So we truly just all have to take ownership and know what piece of it we can help with. So they can go to the 30 Days of Poverty uh, website and just see what all the things are that are offered. And see if there's something that, that resonates. And that, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, all, we've been talking about all of these nonprofit <laughs> organizations, and, and you have you know a few dozen of them here in the local there, area who, who are all part of this. There yeah. Yeah, and who are, who are all involved in looking for volunteers and funds and so forth, mm -hmm. as you say. Um, so obviously nonprofits have a very important role to play, mm -hmm. and, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on, on some sort of uh, divisive political discussion here, but when you talk, um, Stephen Ralph, about a moral imperative, what's the role of our government in dealing with poverty issues? I mean, I, I can't imagine nonprofits can do it all on their own. Right. Well, if you just look at that $500 billion a year, there's a, um, that, is, that should be the government's um, role in, in looking at poverty. We're spending way too much to have to deal with issues regarding poverty. So, um, and that cost is only going to increase over time. So we need to engage everyone to be a part of the solution. We need everyone to come to the table. And, but the government plays a very significant role in that. Well, Stephen just said a few minutes ago, we need to roll up our sleeves. You know, okay, so you've done all this research. That's wonderful. It's great that we have all these tools and resources that we can that we can pick up and we can tout. But it's time to roll up our sleeves. It's time for each and every person to take action. So what I'm hearing is, yes, the government has a role to play. Yes, nonprofits and charities and so mm -hmm. forth have a role to play. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's not just about these bigger organizations. It's about individuals on, on a very grassroots level. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, and so with the involvement of individuals, you think poverty can be ultimately eradicated, to use your word? I think it can, absolutely, if we all band together and, and help families move forward. And that's what it's going to take, one family at a time, just to continue helping those individuals. Well, all the resources are online at 30daysofpoverty.com, and uh, there are still a few events happening in the next several days uh, with that. And, of course, the website stays up uh, year-round now, I guess. This yes, isn't limited does. to just 30 days. Yes, this is something that we want to do every single year. We want to continue to raise that awareness. 
We've been talking with Gina Gibson. She's the executive director and CEO of the Evansville Christian Life Center. Stephen Ralph is a program coordinator there, and uh, the Evansville Christian Life Center is the lead organization behind 30 Days of Poverty, this awareness campaign that's been going on for almost the past month now. Thank you both for your time today. Thank Thank you. you. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. And I'm Tony Voss. This week in the B segment, Scott Hutchison brings us another edition of The Hungry Hoosier. And with the days warming up, Scott is beginning to think about a vacation spot, maybe Margaritaville. Some of my best buds are parrot heads, and it's likely that you have some of them among your circle of friends as well. You may even be one yourself. Now, for the uninitiated, parrot head is the nickname given to Jimmy Buffett fans. As the story goes, the singer looked out at a Cincinnati audience at a 1985 concert and saw a familiar group of fans clad in Hawaiian shirts and parrot hats and commented that he noticed that they seemed to be showing up at a lot of his concerts, just like the deadheads who followed the band The Grateful Dead. Not long afterward, one of Buffett's band members came up with the term parrotheads to describe the avid fans. It didn't take too long for that moniker to evolve to describe not just a fan, but also a lifestyle, one that included a laid-back attitude. So if you know someone who wears cargo shorts most days of the week and seems to be in a perpetual state of relaxation, he or she just might be a parrot head. Now, I'm not a parrot head, but it is not for the lack of trying. For the last 25 years or so, I've been building a career like most people do, beginning in the second half of their 20s and the decades that follow. I've spent way more days than I ever imagined, dressed in ties and wool suits, sitting behind a desk or around a conference table. On the weekends, however, I become a resident of Margaritaville. And as the weather begins to warm, on the weekends, I trade the wingtips for flip-flops and warming April days have me imagining what it would be like to win the lottery and move to a tropical paradise. Now that I'm on the backside half of my working life, I can see my full-time Margaritaville destiny way off in the distance, but more visible than it once was. For now, I'll continue to live the double life and take on my parrothead identity only on the weekends, or while on vacation, and occasionally in the kitchen. Warmer weather dining is one of the best ways I get my temporary Margaritaville fixes. Around July, the back porch at my place serves as a, well, an ocean viewless surrogate for a coastal fish shack. We'll dine al fresco on grilled seafood and light salads, and I've been known to crank up ocean sound ambient music to complete the illusion. It's not quite consistent outdoor dining weather yet. So the other day when I was in somewhat of a parrot head mood, I decided to experiment with a befitting dessert. The result was a tequila cake, sort of a cousin of rum cake that incorporates the blue agave based liquor instead of the rum. To make the cake, you start with a yellow cake mix and a box of instant vanilla pudding. You mix this with milk, some cooking oil, and a half cup of tequila. Pour the batter into a bunt pan, bake it at 325 for about an hour. Once cool, the cake gets topped with a glaze made of melted butter, lime juice, sugar, and another half cup of tequila. Once the glaze cools, you can sprinkle a little margarita salt on top. 
and you can find the complete recipe on the website. The result is a dessert with all the best features of the drink, sweet and tart and just a little bit of salt. Now, this dessert does contain alcohol, so anyone who shouldn't have a real margarita probably shouldn't have this dessert either. So, if you're like me and you can't quite leave the rat race and move to the beach and your summer vacation is still a little too far away, you might want to give this dessert a try. And when you do, you just might find yourself humming a few bars of a Jimmy Buffett song. Buffett doesn't have a song about cake. But anyway, Scott Hutchison works in economic and community development for Purdue and writes about food, family, and community for newspapers, magazines, radio, and TV. The Hungry Hoosier is a production of WBAA Radio in West Lafayette. And on the Trends Facebook page, you can find the recipe for Scott's Buffett-esque tequila cake. I'm Tony Voss. And I'm Micah Schweitzer. This is The Trend. The New Yorker magazine has called Chanticleer the world's reigning male chorus, and numerous other accolades, Grammy awards, and a recorded output of more than 50 albums support the claim. They're no stranger to public radio either, with appearances on A Prairie Home Companion and annual Christmas specials. The 12-member chorus is on tour right now and performs at Evansville's Victory Theater this weekend. I'm joined on the phone now by Chanticleer's interim music director, Jace Wittig. Now, you're the music director, but you're not the conductor. There's no conductor for this uh, ensemble. Correct. The Chanticleer has been performing without a conductor for the vast majority of its of its existence as an ensemble. I, I think, you know, it, it just provides a more direct connection with the audience and between the singers. So what do you do as music director? I um, run rehearsals. Um, I choose all the repertoire. I work uh, closely with the president and general director. Her name is Christine Bullen. And we sort of map out what is to come in the in the future seasons. And then I am tasked with choosing repertoire to fit. And I'm also tasked with making sure that, that uh, the music that's picked is appropriate and fits the theme, uh, that it's easy to perform for the singers or easy enough to successfully perform, I guess you could say, uh, and that it will engage the audience as well. So that makes it sound like you have some pretty strict parameters. And yet when I look at at the program that you're touring right now, you're going all the way from the Renaissance up into, you know, performing like music by Tom Waits. Uh, How do you balance that kind of range? (laughs) Well, it's actually one of the great things about being in Chanticleer, I think, um, as a musician. Usually classical singers have to... um, have to sort of specialize often in a very specific genre. You know, I only sing Verdi or I only sing German opera or whatever it might be. Uh, but that's it's one of the things that's very refreshing about being a singer in this group. So part of the the challenge is to find singers who can do all of those things, um, who can sing on the same concert anything from Gregorian chant to folk music and gospel. Um, and um, believe it or not, they are out there. And um, it's it, it's uh, the challenge challenge of putting it together is, like I said, half taken care of in auditions. Yeah, talk a bit about the audition process, because the, the group in its 35 years of existence has had about 100 members, and so one could say there have been many Chanticleers over the past three and a half decades. How do you maintain a consistent sound, and what do you look for when you're auditioning a new member of the group? Yes, that's a, that is a challenge, you're right. Um, but But finding the right singers is very important. So we spend quite a bit of time uh, in auditions. It's a three-day process. 
uh, once we choose the singers to actually come to San Francisco. They're there for three days, so we really get to know them. Um, and we're, we're looking for people who want to work collaboratively, um, people who bring a lot to the table in terms of their knowledge of all those styles and their ability to, to execute them, to sing them uh, beautifully and appropriately. Um, and, and versatility is really king in terms of beautiful voices. There are a lot of them out there in the world, and we certainly look for those. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to understand how to do all of these things. You call Chanticleer an orchestra of voices. Is there a limit to the sounds the human voice can make? Oh, well, that's an, that's an interesting... I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that question. I'm sure certainly there are limits, as we're all human. Um, you know, if you push it too far in any one direction, uh, we, don't, we don't want to do that. But in collaboration, uh, in working with each other, often we discover things that we didn't even know uh, we could do. If it's a sound that's particular to a certain language, you know, perhaps one person really understands how to do that with their voice. And in rehearsal, we can experiment with, with, uh, with, with the vocalism and figure out how to make the correct sounds in a healthy way. Well, let's take a listen now to a, a song. This is, I mentioned that you sing Tom Waits, and here's a, an arrangement by Vince Peterson of the song Temptation. Let's take a listen to that. So that's Chanticleer singing a song by Tom Waits. What makes a good choral work? Oh, many things. Uh, it can be the text. Uh, it can be just the composer itself. You know, I mean, there, there are those composers that it doesn't matter what piece it is. If they wrote it, it's amazing. Um, it can be the counterpoint. It can be um, the setting of one particular phrase. Uh, and that's really kind of my job is, is to spend a lot of time listening to as much music as you could possibly imagine and um, finding the things that I think are, are interesting and would sound beautiful in the, in the voices of the singers that we have. Do you ever pull something out and find it just doesn't work? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, it can be, that can be addressed in several ways. We can try and change the key. Uh, we can change the voicing around. But sometimes we just end up saying, well, this isn't for us. Um, but luckily, there's so much music out there that is. You've commissioned quite a lot of work, and you've also had uh, composers write for you. And that's the case with a piece by the Chinese composer Chen Yi, I Hear the Sirens Call. Um, talk a bit about how that piece came to being and, uh, and its role on your current tour. 
Well, Chen Yi is a, a very gifted composer, and she uh, has been writing music for Chanticleer for, oh, well, I guess almost 20 years now. Um, not necessarily every season, but we've had a, a long history with her, and uh, we always enjoy singing her music. It's at, at once very exciting uh, and very challenging, both for the singer and the audience, I think. Um, and we were looking for something sort of um, intense and something that, uh, programmatic, meaning that it tells a very clear story uh, and something that would pack a punch. Uh, to put right at the beginning of the second half of our touring program, which is entitled The Siren's Call. Um, so we, you know, I spent some time talking with her about the, the sound that we might want and, and the role that the piece would play in the program. And she ended up with this piece that's, as I said, rather short, but uh, I think packs quite a dynamic punch. Let's take a listen to it. But before, I want to ask, you get some incredibly high sounds. And let's remind listeners, these are all men singing uh, I assume you don't employ castrati. <laughs> no, I don't think that's been legal in the Western world for several <laughs> hundred years now. Uh, so that's uh, just an incredibly developed falsetto on the on the part of the sopranos. Correct, and and the altos both. Um, and most men have an ability to use their falsetto to some extent. Um, you know, think of a singer like Justin Timberlake, or think of people who scream at football games, anything like that. That is the use of the falsetto, but uh, the gentlemen that sing with us just find that their voice functions better in that register, that they can use it more efficiently there, that it just lives there, I guess you could say. And so they trained uh, to use that part of their voice just as any tenor or bass or baritone would train to use uh, their chest voice. Let's hear that now with uh, Chen Yi's I Hear the Sirens Call. We're listening to the music of Chanticleer and talking with interim music director Jace Wittig. We'll have more after a break. This is The Trend. You're listening to The Trend on 88.3 WNIN and online at WNIN.org. Support for the program comes from Tin Man Brewing Company, announcing their locally brewed beer varieties in cans and on draft are now available in local stores and locations. More information available at tinmanbrewing.com.
This is The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Our guest is the interim music director of the 12-member male chorus Chanticleer. Jace Wittig is on the phone as they are currently on tour. And uh, I mentioned earlier that you started out, uh, the ensemble began 35 years ago, with a focus on medieval and Renaissance music. Um, I guess that music was just not being performed much then, because since then we've had this, you know, in the 90s, there was this wave of enthusiasm for medieval plain chant and so forth. So I guess now this music is a lot more common than it was uh, in the 70s. That's right. And I think for most of the people that are currently in the ensemble, uh, they they grew up in choirs where, you know, where Renaissance music was a staple of their, you know, their choral diet, I guess you could say. Um, but that was not really the case. And the early music movement really picked up steam in, in the 70s and the 80s. And um, uh, it sort of ties into what you were asking about countertenors. Um, the idea of Chanticleer's founder, uh, his name is Louis Botto. And um, his idea was that he wanted to create a sound of, of centuries gone by. And, of course, he was fascinated with Renaissance music. And the fact of the matter is, uh, during the majority of the Renaissance period, men and women weren't permitted to sing together in churches or cathedrals. So, um, you know, the soprano and alto parts were written for male voices that could be um, uh, choirs of men and boys, uh, with the young young singers whose voices haven't changed yet. It could be uh, men and castrati, which uh, we no longer have, as we pointed out, or men and countertenors. And um, Lewis had several friends who were countertenors, uh, men singing in their falsetto voice, and he gathered them together and said, you know, let's recreate this, this thing that hasn't been done in a few hundred years now. And um, turns out they liked it. And there's been a tremendous amount of research, of course, within the you know the ancient music or historical music movement. And so now there, there I guess there there is quite a codified set of rules for how that music is performed. But there's still the issue that that we really don't know how it sounded back in the day. So so what are you striving for when you perform uh, medieval or Renaissance music? Well, it depends on the need of the piece. I think we dig into the lines a lot. To me, the genius of Renaissance sacred music is often in the polyphony or the counterpoint, you know, several parts singing um, similar lines, but at totally different times. And if the lines are shaped correctly, it illuminates this glorious matrix of harmony. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of variety even within that style. So we try to understand first the line and then figure out how they all fit together. Uh, And that usually dictates how the piece goes. Well, we have a couple of options uh, to listen to here. We've got one by Gabrielli and one by Gesualdo. What, what would you recommend as one that uh, would be a great illustration here of what you're talking about? The Gabrielli is, is a sort of a classic Venetian Renaissance piece. The, the, the two pieces are quite different. Uh, Gabrielli was employed in St. Mark's in Venice, uh, but this is not actually a sacred piece. Uh, this is uh, a madrigal, and it's sort of a dialogue on pleasure and suffering, uh, and it's, it's very indicative of his writing. It's uh, polychoral, meaning two groups of choirs sort of echoing back and forth, uh, which creates the dialogue. Uh, it's very rhythmically complex, um, and the text setting is very, I think, very, uh, very colorful. Well, let's take a listen to, uh, we'll, we'll do the Gabrielli, and then we'll, we'll follow it up with the uh, Gesualdo and, and hear those in contrast.
the Gesualdo piece is totally different. Gesualdo was a very interesting composer uh, in that he was not employed by the Church uh, in any way. So uh, he was free of the constraints of what the Church wanted him to write, and thus he wrote whatever he wanted. He was a nobleman, he had the means to do as he pleased, um, and so he's known for being very experimental, um, using harmonies that you just almost couldn't believe were written in the 1600s. Um, they sound almost like something you'd hear uh, at the beginning of the 20th century sometimes. You talk about Gesualdo bringing out these harmonies that uh, are very unexpected for his day and age, and and that reminds me a bit of another piece that you have. This is another one of your commissioned pieces um, by the Irish composer Michael McGlynn, and I guess he's drawing a bit on um, some Irish motifs, which means that it has this kind of modal sound, which makes it sound a little bit medieval, but it also then has these very striking harmonies that, that do sound quite modern as well. Right. I think Michael is a very good composer in that way. He draws on a lot of different influences. Um, as you said, chant, uh, traditional Irish music, which often is very folky sounding, um, which is, is the modality you were referring to. And also, um, he sets two texts in this piece. Half of it is in Latin, the first half is in Latin, and the second half is in Irish. Um, and the, the first half is sacred, the second half is, is a song about the cool breeze and the waves of the ocean, um, which I also think is very Irish, and this, this kind of need, uh, this impulse to blend uh, Latin Catholicism with the earth religions that were already in place in Ireland before the Catholics arrived. So here's Michael McGlynn's Song of the Wind.
that's Chanticleer performing a piece by Michael McGlynn, one that they commissioned. And we've been talking with Jace Wittig. He's the interim music director of Chanticleer. We look forward to hearing uh, your program when you perform this Saturday evening, April 13th at 7.30 at the Victory Theater in Evansville. Thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is The Trend. You're listening to The Trend on 88.3 WNIN-FM, live, local, and NPR. We're also on the web at WNIN.org. Support today comes from Morton Solar, a renewable energy solution provider for residential, commercial, governmental, and utility clients wanting to reduce electricity bills and lessen the carbon footprint. Located in Evansville, Indiana, Morton Solar provides consultation, engineering, and design, and installation for projects through the tri-state area. Information on Facebook or at 812-402-0900. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer, and Roger McBain from The Courier and Press is back this week for The Arts Notebook. Hi, Roger. Hello. And I've heard of live theater, and I've heard of puppet shows, but Sesame Street aside, the two don't really come together very often, and yet uh, they're going to do so. University of Southern Indiana Theater is presenting Avenue Q, which is a kind of a Muppet-styled musical that is a long way from Sesame Street. Uh, It follows uh, some young monsters off on their own in New York, trying to make it, struggling with the things that young people struggle with, um, money, goals, careers, relationships, sexuality. It can be vulgar, uh, and uh, there's some swearing. There's uh, people who watch internet porn in it talk about it anyway, and there's a, a full frontal puppet sex uh, scene in <laughs> one part of it. But it's I think it's all kind of softened with these shaggy little um, Muppet figures that appear right alongside the the people who are uh, singing, talking for them, and uh, animating them. Right. So that's it's not uh, one of these. You don't have the the puppets uh, on a little proscenium with the actors hidden behind. Exactly. I talked to Emily Dirkholtz, who uh, is uh, is and operates Kate Monster in this production, and you know she has Kate on one arm. She's operating uh, one of Kate's arms with her other arm. All she can do though is move the head, the neck, the mouth, and uh, operate the arm, and mm. so she. A lot of the expression is through her own face, her own expressions. But she's in sync with Kate when she's uh, doing this. And uh, and I guess the monster showed up for the interview you did as well, right? I mean, it wasn't just the actress on her own. <laughs> That's right. And we've got a little video clip on uh, with the article online. But yes, yeah, the the puppet uh, becomes basically she becomes the puppet, and the puppet becomes her, and they they become extensions of one another for this production. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Sounds very interesting. Now, over at the University of Evansville, uh, two other young people grappling with problems take the stage. But this is a maybe a more uh, traditional uh, play. Yeah, the the most famous star-crossed lovers in history, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, in Shakespeare's production, 
That opens tonight in Shanklin Theater, and that will run through April 21st at the University of Evansville. And of course, given the bad blood between the families uh, in Romeo and Juliet, there's quite a bit of swordplay in the production. And to that end, the production has brought back uh, a former graduate, 2006 graduate. His name is Diego Vijado. Uh, his family is Colombian. Uh, he was born in the United States, but he's a 2006 graduate. He's been living in New York. He works as a fight director, and uh, he calls himself more a designer, he says, who just happens to design movement for violence. In this case, that will involve rapiers, daggers, uh, throwing people on the on the ground, you know, kicking people, uh, that sort of thing. And And I guess it's all designed to look very spontaneous when the play happens, but this is totally choreographed yeah, yeah, and it's make, like a dance it's like a dance or i was thinking of it even from watching my kids learning to play things on instruments you know where they you start off playing it really really slowly note by note they, he calls that slow-mo time they do they move through all the actions really slow mm. then they go to halftime and then uh, they they go to to uh production time to, to the way you would normally see it and he says even that is three quarters of what you if you were really in a fight this would be three quarters of that but the idea is to make it look real but not to be too scary (laughs) (laughs) you got to preserve the safety of the actors and the audience as you point out in your piece now you've been uh, the roving correspondent recently with uh, trips to uh, various events around the region and one of your destinations is ebert fest and that's the film festival founded by the late roger ebert this is going. This is my third Ebert Fest. Uh, it's uh, it's in Champaign, Illinois, his hometown. He was born in Urbana, actually, but he went to the University of Illinois there, and it's a place where he started journalism. But it's a festival. It runs five days, um, and it's going to go on. And I think it's just going to be a very fitting tribute to this Pulitzer Prize-winning film critic who uh, died at 70 just two weeks before the event. And there are even some Evansville connections in two of the films. A couple of them, yeah. Bernie is uh, Jack Black and Shirley MacLaine are in this dark comedy that was produced by Wind Dancer Films, which is a company led by University of Evansville graduates uh, who include uh, Evansville native um, uh, Matt Williams, but David McFadden and Deet Holtmark, who used to be the station manager here, as a matter of fact, years ago. Right. The other one is Not Yet Begun to Fight, which is a documentary about a program in Montana to help injured vets uh, cope with the trauma of their injuries through fly fishing. And Eric Googe, who is an Evansville man who lost an eye in Afghanistan in 2009, is uh, one of the people uh, in that film, featured in that film, and he's going to be going to the festival as well. So I'll be seeing him there this week. Terrific, and we'll hear more about your travels in uh, in coming weeks. And just briefly, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about auditions for the talent showcase that's raising funds for the Evansville Civic Theater. And they have uh, picked their finalists. They've got ten finalists. There, there's going to be uh, 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 singing and uh, and dancing and and a variety of things there, but that's going to be on the 27th of this month at Harrison High School in the auditorium. All right, very good. More information on all of this and more in the Courier and Press and online at CourierPress.com. Roger McBain covers the arts for the paper and uh, is here pretty much every week for the Arts Notebook. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. 
Next week, we'll talk with a renowned Harvard astronomer and a Methodist pastor and ask, is there really a conflict between science and religion? The Trend is a production of WNIN in collaboration with the Evansville Courier and Press. Our producers are Ryan Reynolds, Carol Seiler, and Tony Voss. He also engineers the show. The theme music was written by Jeffrey Osman. I'm Micah Schweitzer, and we'll talk again next week. This is WNIN-FM, Evansville, Henderson, and Owensboro.